A very pleasant hello and welcome. This is the Matthew Rocky Show for the week of February 28th. Thanks so much for taking the time to tune in for the podcast this week. We've got a lot to cover, a special interview also ahead. But before we get to everything, I want to make one very important note. All across news and social media sites, uh, I'm sure you've been hearing about the war in Ukraine. And while that's an extremely important thing to be updated on and know uh, the current situation there, I want to focus the time that we have in the podcast this week to talk about some of the overshadowed stories, the ones that are also very important to know about, but may not have appeared in your feed or in your news for this week because of what's going on in Ukraine. So please continue to pray for Ukraine. Please continue to stay updated with what's going on there. It's so important that we are vigilant in prayer uh, for not only the people of Ukraine, but the country and the world as a whole. There's a lot of leaders that need our prayers, uh, especially right now. But uh, we're going to focus in on some other things, including our first story, this one coming uh, on Tuesday. President Joe Biden delivered his first State of the Union address in which he promised to check Russian aggression in Ukraine, tame soaring U.S. inflation, and deal with the fading coronavirus. Biden declared that he and all members of Congress, whatever their political differences are, are joined in, quote, an unwavering resolve that freedom will always triumph over tyranny, unquote. Lawmakers stood and cheered when he asked them to, to stand in salute of the Ukrainian people. It was a notable show of unity with the Ukrainians. Biden's 62-minute speech was split between attention to the war abroad and worries at home. He must marshal allied resolve against Russians' aggression while tending to inflation, COVID-19 fatigue, and his sagging approval ratings as he heads into the midterm elections. Also out of the White House And D.C. this week, coming out yesterday, the White House announced that it opposes measures that would end the COVID-19 national emergency, and that was announced hours before a Senate vote was planned on the legislation. Senate Joint Resolution 38 would terminate the emergency declaration declared by former President Donald Trump on March 13, 2020, which has been extended multiple times by President Joe Biden. Terminating the declaration would, quote, unnecessarily and abruptly curtail the ability of the administration to respond to the COVID-19 pandemic and would be a reckless and costly mistake, unquote. That's coming from the executive office of the president in a statement. The U.S. Senate on March 2nd approved a resolution that would block enforcement of the COVID-19 vaccine mandate for healthcare workers across the country. The chamber voted 49 to 45 with full support of Republicans and no Democrats voting for the measure. Under the direction of President Joe Biden, federal health officials in 2021 imposed the vaccine mandate for healthcare workers employed at any facility that receives funding from Medicare or Medicaid. The mandate survived a legal challenge with the Supreme Court ruling in January that it was within the powers granted by Congress. Critics say the justification for the mandate, keeping workers from getting COVID-19, has been undermined by the waning effectiveness of the vaccines, particularly after the emergence of the Omicron variant. 
From the Supreme Court, Kentucky's Republican Attorney General should be allowed to continue to defend a state abortion law that was struck down as unconstitutional by lower courts after the state's Democratic governor refused to do so. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled 8-1 to one yesterday. Although Kentucky's abortion law itself wasn't an issue in the case, it's the first time that an abortion-related case has come to the court since Justice Amy Coney Barrett uh, took to the bench on October 2020. The high court examined whether Kentucky Attorney General Daniel Cameron should be allowed to intervene in the case on behalf of his state after the trial court invalidated the law and its decision was upheld by an appeals court. Governor Andy Bashir, a Democrat, had refused to defend the statute in court. Two biotechnology companies have filed lawsuit against Moderna this week and alleged the vaccine manufacturer infringed on patented technology in the development of its commonly used COVID-19 vaccine. The two companies claim in a civil lawsuit filed in Delaware that Moderna used breakthrough technology that had already been developed and created uh, to create the COVID-19 vaccine, such as the lipid nanoparticle delivery system, the companies say that they are seeking financial compensation from Moderna, and they say Moderna committed seven counts of patent infringement. Down in Australia, there's been some massive flooding. Maybe you have not heard about this. A half a million residents in New South Wales are under emergency flood evacuation orders. Emergency Services Minister Stephanie Cook told reporters on Thursday, quote, We have 76 evacuation orders in place covering 200,000 people, and we have 18 evacuation orders across New South Wales covering 300,000 people combined, unquote. Cook told Greater Sydney, the Hunter, and the Central Coast regions uh, need to brace for treacherous weather conditions, and NSW Premier Dominic Perrottent, told residents that they are uh, to evacuate following instructions and get out as soon as possible. NSW Health has also told people isolated for COVID-19 to evacuate their homes immediately if ordered to do so. Four people have died in the flooding. In coordinated moves, governors of California, Oregon, and Washington announced Monday that students in the three West Coast states will no longer have to wear masks in school. Starting March 12th, public health directors and departments in all three states will update their indoor mask policies and move the mask requirements to mask recommendations for schools. This came as a joint announcement from Governor Gavin Newsom of California, Oregon Governor Kate Brown, and Washington Governor Jay Inslee. The changes will apply to all schools and child care facilities, but will not cover school buses, which are subject to a federal mask mandate for public transportation. Several trucker convoys comprising thousands of vehicles converged in Indiana and held a rally late March 2nd before continuing their trip to Washington, D.C. to protest against COVID-19 restrictions and mandates. The People's Convoy, which set off from California on February 23rd, rolled through multiple states, arriving in Arizona, Texas, Oklahoma, and Missouri before heading to Indiana. They have two more stops in Ohio and Maryland before reaching Washington, where organizers hope to arrive around March 5th. 
The group was inspired by the Freedom Convoy in Canada, which made global news for protesting COVID-19 restrictions. It's hard to quantify exactly how many people are participating in the United States People's Convoy, but there have been thousands who have gathered along the roads and overpasses across the country to cheer them on. Widespread power outages were reported across Taiwan on the morning of March 3rd, leaving millions without electricity after an alleged accident at a power plant in the southern part of the country. The blackouts began around 9 a.m. local reports say. According to the Taiwan Power Company, the outages are caused by equipment failure, uh, which provides about a seventh of Taiwan's power. Looking at the instability of the European energy markets, Pennsylvania's House Republicans are urging Governor Tom Wolf to unleash Pennsylvania's natural gas stores to power the world. The largest natural gas reserve in the United States is mostly underground in Pennsylvania and West Virginia. Dan Weaver, president and executive director of Pennsylvania's Independent Oil and Gas Association, said, quote, if our region was its own country, we'd be the eighth largest natural gas producing country in the world, unquote. This organization includes Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and Ohio. In one of many actions signifying an intentional move to renewable energy sources like wind and solar, President Biden signed an executive order on his first day in office stopping the construction of the Keystone XL pipeline. Without pipeline infrastructure, it's tough to move large amounts of natural gas. Resistance to pipeline construction is costing the United States its energy independence. A recent post from the American Fuel and Petrochemical Manufacturers website says, quote, U.S. West Coast refineries rely on imports of light, sweet crude oil from other countries, including Russia, because access of U.S. produced light, sweet crude oil is challenged by geography, transportation, and logistics, unquote. The United States Congress earlier in the week also voted to revive the Keystone XL pipeline, which failed. However, they are vowing that we should no longer be purchasing oil from Russia. The Arizona House on Monday passed legislation that would ensure citizens are registered to vote in the state's elections and are able to prove their citizenship upon registration. Potential Arizona voters would be required under House Bill 2492 to present a form of identification within 30 days of registering to vote. It adds a requirement that voters include their date of birth and early voting number along with their signature on their return ballots. Voters currently just sign their name and county officials compare that to signatures they have on file with verified voter registration documents. The bill, if signed into law, would also prevent an in-person voter from presenting two documents, such as a water or tax bill, if they do not have their identification. Voters would be required to include their place of birth and a verified residence address. And turning now to the world of sports, Major League Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred announced following the 5 p.m. deadline on Tuesday that the owners of Major League Baseball and the Players Union were unable to come to an agreement on a new collective bargaining agreement. They ceased negotiations at the time but have since resumed. 
The concerns of our fans are at the very top of our consideration list, Manfred said. As of now, though, spring training is suspended alongside a minimum of the first two regular season series. And also from sports, this one in football, though, the NFL and the NFL Players Association announced on Thursday that they have canceled all COVID-19 protocols going forward. So that means any team-related activities from this point on uh, can resume back to normal. Wow, two years in the making, but finally uh, some normalcy uh, for football teams in the NFL. And another football team and our final story for today. Uh, this one is more of uh, just a reminder of how God can uh, continue to work in someone's life through hardship, but then also a prayer request for Utah State football coach Blake Anderson. On Tuesday afternoon, Utah State Athletics announced the tragic death of the son of head football coach Blake Anderson. Athletic Dir Director John Hartwell said, quote, on behalf of Utah State University, the athletics department and the football program, our thoughts and prayers are with coach Blake Anderson and his family following the tragic death of his son, unquote. No additional information has been released about which son died or the circumstances of his death. On Monday, Anderson tweeted, God is still God in the midst of our broken. Anderson has uh, three children from his first wife, Wendy, two adult sons, Colton and Cass, and an adult daughter, Callie. Anderson remarried in March of 2021 and has two young adopted daughters. The Anderson family has endured hardship in the last few years, including the death of Anderson's first wife, Wendy, in August of 2019, following a bout with cancer. His father passed away also in May of 2020. Back in January, uh, Anderson said, quote, This is my journey. This is how God is using me. I've got a platform that I'm very grateful for, and I hope people can see a person that still loves others, that still loves Christ through some of the worst times in his life. So I think it's my job. It's my duty. It's my responsibility to ensure and be open so that the players, fans, or just people in general can take a peek and see Christ's steps and actions, unquote. Certainly a man who appears to want to turn this grief and tragedy as a statement about uh, what God can do in the midst of our brokenness. So the Anderson family, the entire Utah State Athletics Department, uh, definitely in need of our prayers right now. second section of the Matthew Rocky show for this week and we've got a very special interview now. I'm being joined by my sister Joanna Rocky and one thing that I did not mention in the news section but is worth uh, noting is a passing of a hero of many um, who lived in Germany uh, a number of years ago and Joanna is going to fill us in on the whole story of the candy bomber in case you're not familiar. So thank you so much for joining me today, Joanna, and Phyllis, and tell us about the Candy Bomber. Thank you for having me on. 
Yeah, so just to give a little background on this, um, after World War II, the four allied nations, uh, or the main ones, Russia, the U.S., Britain, and France, divided up Germany into occupation zones, with Russia taking the eastern and the other three dividing up the western. But they also, they still wanted some presence in Berlin, which was um, located about 110 miles inside of the border. So they divided that up, um, Russia again taking the east and the other three dividing up the west, and they made an arrangement. But the Soviet Union had originally been on the side of Germany until Germany uh, turned on them in the World War. And so then they joined the Allies, but they were still very distrustful of the democratic nations. And so in 1948, in June, they blocked the sea and land travel into Berlin, which they were able to do, and hoping that the West Berliners would starve, and so then they would want to join the Soviet Union. But they didn't count on one thing, and that was that the treaty did allow for a guaranteed airspace for each of the um, other three nations. And so they began the uh, Berlin airlift. So they would fly every few minutes, planes would land um, every day, mainly at the Tempelhof Airport, but also at the Tengel and Gatto airports, and they would fly in food and supplies to keep the West Berliners alive. Um, they called it different names, Operation Vittles and Operation Plainfair. So, Lieutenant Gail Halverson had just arrived in Germany, and he wanted to kind of see Berlin, and because he was a pilot, he couldn't do that on his own flights because of the tight schedule. So, he hitched a ride with a different C-54 and was waiting at the airport, uh, the Tempelhof Airport, before the, his driver came, and he saw some children at the airport fence. So he walked over there, and he kind of started talking to them and asked them some questions. And he asked them how they were doing and whatever, and they were telling him how many of them had lost family members um, during the war, or some of them were even on the Soviet side. Um, they were talking about how they had experienced it very personally, the effects of World War II and they had seen the Soviet system and the way they operated. And they were, they were begging them to continue the airlifts because they didn't want to fall to the Soviets. And he later recalled that the children had given him the most meaningful lesson in freedom he ever had in his life. And so later, then a couple minutes later, his driver arrived, and so he walked away, but he couldn't stop thinking about the children. And so he, he found in his pocket two sticks of gum, so he broke them in half and walked back over to the children to give them. And he kind of expected them to fight over them, and, but then they didn't. He was surprised that they didn't. The four who had gotten them took the gum out, and then they tore the wrappers in pieces and gave them to the other children so they could smell them. And so it was obvious they hadn't had anything like that for years. So he turned and kind of started walking away again. And another plane thundered overhead and landed, and then he got the idea to drop gum or chocolate to the kids next on the next daylight trip that he was on. So he went back over and told the children, which they were ecstatic about, and they were like, well, how will we know it's you? And he said, well, I'll wiggle my airplane wings as the signal. And so they were kind of like, well, what's that? So he, he demonstrated with his arms, and 
After that, um, he became known as Uncle Wiggly Wings. So he got back and he started thinking about how he was going to do this. And um, unfortunately, he didn't have access to a lot of candy and his own rations wouldn't really be enough for 30 children. And his buddies and crew caught on and they started donating candy from their own rations. So they started the first batch, it was just three, made, uh, they made them into parachutes with handkerchiefs. And then on their next flight into Berlin, they, he wiggled his wings and then he dropped them out of the flare chute. After a few more drops, they were gonna stop so they wouldn't get in trouble because they hadn't asked their commanding officers, but unfortunately, their commander, commanding officers found out. Anyway, in an article by a newspaper reporter um, in Berlin who almost got hit on the head by one of the parachutes. So he was kind of worried that he was gonna get kicked out, but instead they all congratulated him, and so it kind of started expanding. Um, and candy, eventually, first candy started coming in from just other soldiers and pilots and things, and then it started expanding, eventually getting candy from the U.S., Britain, and even Australia. It became known as Operation Little Vittles, and it had a storehouse of candy in the U.S. Many organizations in the U.S. donated twine, linen for parachutes, and of course candy, along with candy donated from other people across the nation. Lieutenant Halverson received many letters of thankfulness from the children in Berlin. And after he was uh, stationed somewhere else, the work was continued by those his buddies. And by the time the Berlin airlift ended, they had dropped over 20 tons of candy to the children. Um, later in life, he eventually uh, connected with many of the children that he dropped candy to. And there are many very touching and um, amazing stories of the lives that were very touched by the candy, but we don't have time to cover a lot of those today. Later on in life, he went on to participate in other drops to children of the children of the airlift and many memorial celebrations. He became a very honored person and had many opportunities to which he always said, all of this for two sticks of gum. He made the U U.S. Air Force's career but he never forgot those children and the hope that they gave him. Well, that is an incredible story and a lot of good done by uh, Gail Halverson. And he passed away February 16th at the age of 101. I was just going to mention, if people want to learn more about this story, um, I'm sure there's lots of books at the library. There's also a book called Candy Bomber, The Story of the Berlin Airlift's Chocolate Pilot by Michael O tunnel that has a lot of about the story all right excellent resource so there you go if you want to learn more about the candy bomber check out that book it's uh, just an incredible story thanks again joanna yep, you're welcome thank you section of the Matthew Rocky show for this week. We're going to head to Maine for our first story. Some people find being in a courtroom traumatic and in Maine one county is doing something to ease the stress of those who feel that way. 
Officials in Aroostook County are the first in the state to have a dedicated therapy dog to provide emotional support for people dealing with traumatic experiences. It's a yellow Labrador puppy named Holiday, and the pup has begun its process of training to reach the goal of being a calming presence amid judges, juries, and other trial participants. Aroostook County District Attorney Todd Collins told the Bangor Daily News that a courthouse dog, quote, can provide emotional support for everyone. Unquote. Continuing with that nature theme, it's a product of the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance and Jim Henson's Creature Shop. So, as you might expect, it's an adorable blend of both nature and whimsy. Percy is a huge porcupine puppet that made its debut on Tuesday at a Los Angeles park, standing nearly two stories high and sporting the nose a size of a Volkswagen. Percy drew fascinated looks from school kids and members of the media who attended his unveiling. Percy's debut is time to celebrate next week's opening of the zoo's new Wildlife Explorers Base Camp. So there you go. Coming out of L.A., I gotta be honest, a two-story tall porcupine sounds a little bit intimidating to me, but... If it's cute, I can understand the draw. Speaking of being drawn to things, this sounds uh, both unusual, but also kind of like a lot of fun. Each year, there is a Pancake Day race, and this was started all the way back in the 15th century in only England. And it was in 1950 that Liberal Kansas challenged only to an international competition and since then they have been off except for 2021 where they took a year off because of the pandemic they were back at it this year and this week Whitney Hay of Liberal uh, beat out Katie Godoff of Only England by three seconds for a time of one minute and seven seconds uh, contestants must carry a pancake in a frying pan through the 415 yard race and they must flip the pancake at the beginning and the end of the dash. I definitely wouldn't win, but that does sound like it would be a ton of fun, or at least pretty hilarious to watch. Well, we all put a value on something, and whether that is the pen we're using to a gift from our grandma to maybe a picture that our niece or nephew may have given us, uh, that value can range from nothing to uh, so valuable that the sentimental value is high enough that no dollar or monetary amount could ever come close to uh, signifying how much value that thing holds to us. Well, in history, there are a lot of things that hold uh, both a sentimental and historical value, but also hold monetary value. And some monetary values were placed on two items in particular this past week at online auctions. The first is a leather helmet that was worn by Amelia Earhart on a flight across the Atlantic in 1928. She also wore it the following year when she completed a flight from... Santa Monica, California to Cleveland. That's where she lost the helmet. Uh, the helmet was lost among the thousands of fans who cheered her on as she came in to Cleveland. A boy was able to find that helmet and gave it to a girl that he liked. That girl's son, Anthony Twiggs, is a 67-year-old Minnesotan who has tried for years to prove that the helmet that he inherited from his mother was indeed Earhart's. That was finally proven this past fall through photo matching technologies, 
and they were able to confirm that it was indeed Earhart's leather helmet, and that is sold at an auction in Cleveland for $825,000. That is incredible, $825,000. Another thing with a lot of value, it was at the time just $8.50 when Michael Cole, a student at Northwestern University, bought two tickets to an NBA game featuring the Chicago Bulls. That was back on October 26, 1984, but it happened to be Michael Jordan's NBA debut. Cole was unable to find a friend to join him for the game, so one ticket went unused. However, that uh, payday came this past week when that unused ticket sold for $468,000. (laughs) That is absolutely insane. How can you how can you even guess that that's going to happen? You know, a you're seeing a guy who yeah might have had a lot of hype, uh, but you have no idea what his career is going to be like, and you buy an extra ticket thinking you're going to find somebody to go with you, and they don't come, and all of a sudden because that ticket was unused, uh, a number of a matter of about uh, less than forty years later, uh, that ticket's worth almost a half a million dollars. That's incredible. Another story, this one of things being incredible in rather an interesting way. Uh, Did you know there is a U.S. Tap Water International Tasting Contest? Yeah, that's right. An Ohio water district has won the top prize. Montpelier, Ohio took home first place in the best municipal water on Saturday in the 32nd annual Berkeley Springs International Water Tasting, which occurs in West Virginia. It beat out two... Water districts in California to take home the gold medal. Judges base their rankings on taste, odor, mouthfeel, and aftertaste. The nine judges were chosen from among entries in 16 states, three Canadian provinces, and eight other countries. Well, moving on to another water-related story. Although this is frigid water and nearly cost an individual his life. An Alaskan man clung to a chunk of ice in Alaska's Cook Inlet for over 30 minutes on Saturday before he was finally rescued. Alaska wildlife troopers say 45-year-old Jamie Snenden of Homer was treated for hypothermia and is expected a full recovery. Snenden was reported to have been walking along the shoreline when ice broke free and he drifted into the inlet. Alaska Wildlife Trooper Jeremy Baum arrived and saw Snenden clinging to the ice chunk with only his head and arms above the frigid water. A Good Samaritan vessel arrived at the same time and they were able to get Snenden aboard the fishing vessel. And I gotta say, in Alaska, uh, A, that man I'm sure is very thankful to be alive, but hopefully also praising the Lord. Uh, Alaska is a huge place and it can definitely take Uh, Rescue workers a long time to get to certain places, and as in this situation, over 30 minutes. That's uh, definitely the Lord's grace that he is still alive. This story is coming out of Switzerland, and the question is, do you want to go to prison? Well, volunteers are being asked in Switzerland. I'm serious, but maybe not in quite the way that you might expect. The government is offering people the chance to live behind bars. The idea is to have the prisoners, quote-unquote, make themselves at home at the prison before it becomes home to actual inmates. So far, the offer has been accepted by nearly a thousand people. However, it's unclear 
how many will actually participate. Uh, the prison sleepover is scheduled for March 24th through the 27th. <laughs> and that, it sounds, uh, it's so strange. It, honestly, it would be very interesting too. So probably educational in some ways, but wow. Moving back across to the United States and Indiana, an Indiana bride on a transplant waiting list got the call that she had a match for a donor. And that was just four days though before she was supposed to get married. So she moved her wedding up that day and exchanged vows before rushing off to the hospital to have the transplant surgery. Of course, it was not the wedding she was expecting to have, nor was it really the phone call she was expecting to have. She says that she had been put on the new heart waiting list just six months earlier, and they were expecting that they wouldn't get a call for a few years. She and her husband say they plan to have a reception in June, and she will wear her wedding dress there for the first time. The couple is also planning a honeymoon that is not spent in the hospital, and I can totally understand that. Well, one last story, another uh, story of uh, miraculous height and just amazement at what two men were able to recover and endure. Uh, they were trapped in caves under a mountain near Chattanooga, Tennessee. Fire and rescue workers spent this past Wednesday looking for any signs of the men, eventually finding them in an abandoned train tunnel. Gabriel Vaughn and Robbie Dobos finally walked out from the tunnel underneath Lookout Mountain after a harrowing 24 hours. The two 20-year-olds were reunited with family and friends who were waiting at the base while rescue workers searched. Uh, the fire department said the pair had to huddle for warmth in nearly 300 feet of crawl space until they arrived. They also say that train lines had to be shut down all the way up to Chicago until they were able to find their whereabouts. Police say the pair is also facing trespassing charges, although everyone is thankful that they are safe. <laughs> I have uh, never been one to be all that adventurous, and I think it would be kind of fun to explore tunnels, but let me tell you, being trapped down and having no idea where you are sounds like an extremely terrifying experience, so definitely glad for the safety of those two individuals. Well, just a couple of last notes for you. William Penn, you might know him. He was the founder and mayor of Philadelphia. Here's a story you might not know. Uh, his two aunts were extremely skilled in baking. And one day, uh, the citizens of the town came to Mr. Penn because there were two bakeries in the town, and they had raised the price of pies to the point that only the rich could afford them. And not wanting to make a law to challenge the bakeries directly, he decided to ask his aunts for advice. Uh, they were horrified at the situation and offered to uh, fix the situation themselves by opening their own bakery and offering pies for two cents cheaper than the other two bakeries. That, of course, sent them on a, to a roaring success where people were buying their pies out quickly and the other uh, bakeries in Philadelphia subsequently had to lower their prices. This kept going on until eventually prices were back down to a more uh, affordable level for all citizens of Philadelphia. Uh, their achievements are considered among the greatest in Philadelphia, and in fact, they're remembered as the remarkable pirates of Penzance. 
<laughs> okay, that's terrible. All right, with that, we leave you. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Matthew Rocky Show for this week. We'll see you next time.